following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 4th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the hilarious terribleness slash terrible hilarity of the Washington football team's triumph over Philadelphia in the final game of the NFL regular season. We'll also discuss Alabama and Ohio State's victories in the college football playoff semis and their matchup in next week's final. And ESPN's Michelle Vopel will join us to assess the Duke women's basketball team's decision to opt out of the season. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak, in a few seconds of panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Neither hilariously terrible nor terribly hilarious. Put that on your CV. With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burns Season 3 and 6, Joel Anderson. What would you not put on your CV, Joel? Well, I haven't even put Slate on my latest CV, <laughs> to be honest. So, <laughs> yeah, I got a long way to go. Uh, well, while you work on that, <laughs> maybe I will maybe I will read the introduction for our first segment. How's that sound? That works. Let's get started. Yeah, a lot to do today. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. At 10.46 p.m. Eastern on Sunday night, New York Giants wide receiver Darius Slayton tweeted the word bruh, followed by an ellipsis. It was around that time that the Philadelphia Eagles third string quarterback Nate Sudfeld threw an interception. And, uh, and you know, it was just like a punt. I love when interceptions are just like punts. But then just a few seconds later, the Philadelphia Eagles' Nate Sudfeld fumbled a snap, which was actually not just like a punt. Maybe that's what Slayton was anticipating happening with his ellipsis. If so, good call, Darius Slayton. The Eagles and Nate Sudfeld eventually lost to the Washington football team at 20-14, to giving 7-9 Washington the NFC East title and a spot in the playoffs and knocking Darius Slayton and his 6-10 and 10 Giants out of the postseason. Bruh. Joel, the league and NBC actually chose to flex this game into Sunday Night Football. The whole regular season, all 256 games of it, it was all building up to this. The Eagles benched Jalen Hurts. They brought in Sudfeld when they were down by just three in the fourth quarter. Uh, Eagles coach Doug Peterson said he was, quote, coaching to win. Hertz would have actually given the Eagles a chance to win, but if Philly lost, they'd get a better draft pick. And so it seems, despite what Doug Peterson said, like they did what they could to lose on purpose, which mission accomplished, I guess. After the game, sports law guy Michael McCann suggested that the Eagles' behavior was fraud. Former Packers VP Andrew Brandt wondered if Commissioner Roger Goodell would consider disciplining Philly. I also saw a whole bunch of people on Twitter saying that all of this was just extremely funny. So should we be saying bruh this morning with a disappointed shake of our heads or an amused smirk or maybe both? You can smirk and and shake at the same time. (laughs) I think Darius Slayton has the right idea 
But it's hard to imagine anyone feeling sorry for a 6-10 and 10 football team that fell short of a playoff berth. We spent so much of the final weeks of the NFL season using the phrase, control your own destiny. Like, what that's... I only hear it in relation to NFL playoffs, right? You control your own destiny. If you win out, you win this game, you control your own destiny. Well, as it turned out, that actually means something. So once you no longer control your own destiny, you leave yourself at the mercy of a team that has absolutely no incentive to compete anymore. And, I mean, the Eagles were looking out for their own interests, which is to say, um, that's their prerogative. The league hasn't done anything to disincentivize this sort of thing. And until it does, this sort of thing will happen all the time. And and to be honest, you know, it's funny because you said the league flexed this game into Sunday night football. I think it was a great choice. What else would have been more interesting than that game? Actually, I mean, you know, it was two of the league's marquee franchises playing with actual stakes on the line. And the way it ended was at least as entertaining as it would have been if the game was actually competitive. Like if we can acknowledge that there's a lot of ways to be entertained by football, whether by how good it is, by how bad it is, by the stakes involved, whatever. I thought that this was a bad football game that happened to be entertaining but because of all of the like various scenarios going on around it. And so fraud, I mean, just look around the rest of the league, man. I mean, a whole bunch of teams took the week off, didn't play their best players, playing quarterbacks that hadn't thrown passes in years. People are playing for contract incentives all over the league in week 17. There's all sorts of ways in which these results are manipulated in the final week of the regular season. So just because this game happened to have everybody's attention, it didn't mean that it was such a departure from everything else that was going on in the league that week. I think that's all reasonable, Joel. And I saw a lot on Twitter about how the Giants will remember this someday. The Eagles were tanking for draft position, and that's fine except that they would have started Nate Sudfeld if they really wanted to tank, um, that this ultimately helped the Giants because they were not a playoff team and it got them into a better draft position. And yeah, like you said, the Giants should have won more games. But I think that the Giants were undeserving is not the point here. The Washington football team was undeserving. These teams suck. They were all tire fires. And... The fact that it was flexed into Sunday night was absolutely the right decision because we love watching car crashes. And that's what this game was. And I mean that figuratively, not in the literal sense that every play in a football game is a car crash. So, you know, we all watch that shit instead of watching Steph Curry score 62 points. Maybe not all of us, but I watch that shit instead of watching Steph Curry score, score 62 points because my prehensile fan tail is with the Giants and I wanted to see what would happen. And I was kind of angry as the fourth quarter unfolded because, you know, Peterson didn't kick a field goal to tie the game when the Philadelphia offense couldn't do shit. And then he brought in a guy, 27-year-old journeyman backup quarterback who hadn't played at all. If I were the Giants this morning, yeah, that is not fair. And it really was kind of a fraud on the game. Those players were trying. I mean, there were guys on the Eagles who were were trying to play well. You don't think Nate Sudfeld was trying to play? Nate oh, Sudfeld. I know Nate Sudfeld was trying <laughs> yeah. to play. And I don't blame Nate Sudfeld at all. Josh, I mean, Nate Sudfeld was the one that was put in a terrible position. The guy hasn't played at all. He's thrown into national television in a game of significance and you knew he was going to just be embarrassed. There was no heroics. I didn't actually know that. Like he had played in games. I think he played during the Eagle Super Bowl season and seemed fine. Like he wasn't great. I mean, I think the issue with Sudfeld is something that that you just mentioned there that he hadn't played in, right. in the game in like multiple years. But I don't think it's like totally 
it wouldn't have been the craziest thing in the world in a week in which like people that I had never heard of named John Wolford and Chris Streveler played in a game that had, you know, quarterback in a, uh, in a game with playoff implications for both teams, the Rams and the, mm-hmm. the Cardinals. Like, I don't think it would have been the craziest thing that happened in the NFL last, uh, you know, week if Nate Sudfeld came off the bench and beat the terrible Washington football team. Like, I think that would have been, that was the ending that this game deserved. And sure. it would have been similar to the, you know, the Jets-Browns game uh, a couple weeks ago, which is the rare game in sports where the incentives were lined up for both teams or the Jets wanted to lose and the Browns wanted to win. And yet the Jets won and the Browns lost. Mm-hmm. Like it would have been, f- and, and like Nate Sudfeld wasn't trying to lose the players that the Eagles put out on the field weren't trying to lose. And so it would have been f- the truly hilarious way for this to play out was for the players to like screw up what the organization's seem to want to do here and have the Eagles win and, and Washington lose and have Darius Slayton and the Giants be happy. So, and back to cliches here for a second, the reason that this was flexed into Sunday Night Football is I believe that it was the only game on the schedule where the results from other games didn't have an effect on whether it would be important. Like, you couldn't put, you know, the Brown-Steelers game and because it's possible that, like, based on earlier results, it it wouldn't matter. And so controlling of destiny, Joel, that was the reason that NBC put this this game on TV. The other thing that I I thought was funny in your uh, answer was referring to the Giants as a 6-10 and 10 football team, which made me think of the cliche, you are what your record says you are. And so maybe instead of just being Washington football team, maybe next year the entire NFC should be 6-10 and 10 football team, 7-9 and nine football team, 4-11-1 football team. I think that works. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, doesn't it just say all that we need to know about the NFC East that the team that won it was the Washington football team? You know, like the team that had a whole scale change in the front office leadership, a team that is currently embroiled in several sexual harassment scandals, a team that just last week released its former franchise quarterback, Dwayne Haskins. The team that's probably least well positioned to succeed going forward. Right. In terms of odds makers, they had the fourth best odds in the division, which means they had the worst odds in the division of winning it this year. And they won it. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it just speaks poorly about everybody else. I don't think the Giants have a right to complain. They played terrible all year and they didn't they came up short at the end. And I mean, shouldn't we separate out like I don't think the Giants have a right to complain either. But I do feel like the the thing that was so weird about this was like, why not start Nate Sudfeld from the beginning? Like Peterson's actions were just kind of incoherent. Well, like, during I mean, the game, well, like they punted, well, like like late in the game, they punted from inside the the Washington forty yard line, and then they went for a touchdown I, on fourth I, and goal. Like it just it didn't make sense. I don't. Well, you know, see, I think that so that was Jalen Hurts' fourth start. So you wanted to at least get him some experience seeing how he's going to perform against a credible NFL defense. I mean, whatever you want to say about the Washington football team, they do have a very good defense. So you wanted to see how you perform in that game with some stakes. How did he perform? Not well. Like that's actually the kind of the thing that makes me sort of like, well, what do you, what is everybody complaining about? Because it's not like Jalen Hurts was setting the world on fire. You know what I mean? Like he was struggling to put up points. He went seven of 20 for 72 yards against that defense. So I don't, I kind of don't understand why everybody's so, 
Oh, it was I, totally I, inconceivable. Like maybe, like maybe if they, if maybe they could have put Carson Wentz in, right? Like maybe that's the thing that everybody would have preferred to have seen rather than Nate Sudfeld. But he's an asset. Yeah, I, I, I mean, well, they, Joel, Carson Joel, Wentz didn't even dress, right? So he was a healthy scratch along with several other players. Yeah, I mean, Alshon could, Jeffrey yeah. and and some other players. I mean, Stefan, I guess the I guess the reason why some people are saying fraud is like, okay, the Chiefs start Chad Henney. Like, you know, they're not trying to win, but it is unusual in the NFL to pursue a strategy like this of, okay, you're sitting out a bunch of starters, but a bunch of guys are playing. And then you play the quarterback that gives you the better chance to win. And then you like take him out in the fourth quarter in a close game. It was like preseason behavior, right. not it was, regular it was, season behavior. Hey, you know, Nate Sudfeld needs some, he needs some snaps to get some film so that when we cut him, someone else can pick him up as a backup quarterback. And, you know, fraud is a strong word. Ethics are strong. I sort of, you know, I, I blanch when people get on their high horse and talk about integrity and ethics in, in, a, in an enterprise like the NFL. But the reality here is that, yeah, the, the, the other team had something to play for. And the players on the Eagles, I am sure, did not want to go out there with a bunch of backups and not put out a credible effort. And this was not a credible effort by this team. I mean, there are guys on that team. You know, Jason Kelsey, the offensive lineman, was starting his 105th straight game. He's 33 years old. He was injured most of the season with an elbow injury, and he was out there playing. And I'm guessing he was not thrilled. Maybe he loves Nate Sudfeld as a dude, but I'm guessing he was not thrilled that they waved the white flag and with both putting the the third string quarterback that hadn't played it all in and with this ridiculous, inexplicable play calling by the coach. I, I guess stuff, but I mean my thing is is that they're in the fourth quarter, they were already losing. You know what I mean? It's not like we can we can point to the, the They're losing by three. <laughs> it right, should have but, been a tie game because any normal coach would have kicked a field goal. No, that no. That, that that part is d- dumb. That's f- it was fine for them to go for the touchdown. But, but see, this is what I'm saying. I just like all this like nitpicking these all small individual decisions, and I'm like the whole of it is that that the Eagles still had a chance to win late in the game. You know, they had a possession. Now maybe that you can argue that yes, maybe Nate Sudfeld is an indication that they were not taking the results of the game as seriously as they could, but they were still in the game. You know what I mean? So it's not. I mean, I, it's. A, a outright taint job, like you, like everybody has said, would have been Nate Sudfeld starting from the very start. Right. They didn't do that, and they were yeah. just like, "Well, it's not like Jalen Hurts was it's setting not like the world on fire." Any plays that allowed Nate Sudfeld to throw the ball more than twelve yards down the field. And by the oh, way, he threw I, that I think, he threw that long pass for an interception. I think after that, though, <laughs> after that, like near the end when they needed to gain lots of yards in order to try to tie or win the game. But I think ultimately, we just like saying Nate Sudfeld. It does have a little Blake Bortles to it, doesn't it? it sounds like a guy who played at Pitt for some reason. That's the name of a, a quarterback. <laughs> They used to play a pit. Indiana, which is yeah. the, the pit of the uh, the Big Ten, <laughs> I guess. So the thing that I feel like the smirking crowd is missing here is that, again, the obvious most hilarious outcome is for the Eagles to win. And also, it's the outcome that rewards fans because by about a bajillion miles, Giants hosting Tom Brady and oh. the Bucks is the better playoff matchup. The Giants actually would have had a chance to beat the Bucks, which I think Washington does not. Like, they only lost to them by two earlier in the year. And we get to, it's the ultimate test of the, is Daniel Jones Eli Manning, or does he just make faces like him? <laughs> like, if the Giants could have beaten Tom Brady, 
Like that is that is the game, I guess, other than the Saints game that I would have been looking forward to the most. Yeah. And I just feel like Washington is going to get destroyed by Tom Brady and the Bucks, and that won't be any fun for me. And I want kind of Washington to get destroyed by Tom Brady and the Bucks because this is that would this is a game of of ew Brady and Dan Snyder, and uh, you know they should both disappear into the New Jersey swamp. <laughs> 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 wow, Stefan, that got dark very yeah, quickly. I mean, very, very harsh. Yeah. I mean, don't you guys? I mean, we we talked about fraud and the ethics in the game, and let, let's just—is it at all possible? And has anybody entertained the possibility that the Eagles, with a chance to win the game late in the fourth quarter or in the fourth quarter, that Doug Peterson gets a call or somebody nudges him? from the front office and says, hey, you understand that if you win this game, that's the difference between picking at number six and picking at number nine in the draft. You know what I, mean? I mean, is that is that, is that so far afield? And he's just like, you know what? You're right. Let's call off the dogs. Doug, because- Doug, Doug. I only 11,000 votes, man. Come on, Doug. You can find them. <laughs> yeah, I know. This sounds like very Dominion voting machine fantasy world. But don't you, I mean, isn't that at all possible? Because, I mean, again, the responsible thing is for them to have lost. Well, they had, they had prepped us for this because he was talking about giving Sudfeld snaps before right. the game. So so we we were primed for this to happen. So it wasn't... It well, then wasn't why is everybody shocked. so damn shocked? I don't understand. Like, everybody, you they were in play, the game. Sudfeld. Because the difference is that the circumstances You play to win change. the game. Uh, you play to win the game. the game. You get what you get in week 17 of the NFL. Like, I mean, there's no, none of it has to make any sense. And that's the way it's gone my entire life. There are all sorts of incomprehensible things that are happening within the course of the game. If the Giants don't ask whoop the Eagles twice next year, there's no... <laughs> Can I just run through some things that need to be said? Number one, Buffalo is looking unbeatable. Number two, the Browns made the playoffs for the first time <laughs> since 2002. Uh, number three, Joel, shame on you for not noting that Derrick Henry ran for oh, 2,000 yards. I have it here in my notes. Let's talk about <laughs> well, if King you Well, if you have it in your notes and don't say it, what not good does it do? Well, no, people? No, I'm going with the flow of the conversation. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, eighth, eighth player ever to do so. And then... Joel, again, the Saints played without any running backs, which I refer to as a reverse Bronco. They still <laughs> they still ran for 156 yards with mostly wide receiver Ty Montgomery going for over 100. And so we have these two kind of contradictory things back. here. Derrick Henry bringing glory to the running back position in the NFL and the Saints proving that not only do you not need a star running back, you don't need a running back at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, although Tom, like, like Steph says, Tom's gotten some some snaps yeah. at the running back position. And I mean, did uh, your boy, uh, you know, Jim Tebow or whatever his name, did he did he get some snaps? He ran for a touchdown. As, he ran for as a touchdown. All right, so they got a running back back there. So Alvin Kamara tested positive for COVID and all the other running backs were out as contacts. And the Saints are playing on Sunday. If the, if Roger Goodell had wanted to screw them, they could have. You could have put the game on Saturday. But since it's Sunday, that'll be ten days since Kamara tested positive. And if he continually tests negative, he'll be able to play without practicing or being with the team at all. Stefan, are you excited to see Alvin Kamara back on the field without practicing at all? This you know is going to be great. It's, it's going to be an NFL, the greatest moment in the NFL. What a triumph! Josh, it's January. These guys do not need to practice anymore. <laughs> practice is something for August. They are well-versed in the playbook, and their bodies 
He will be better for not having run around for a week. Getting a week and a half off is great for him right now. I thought you were going to go with, it's wrong for them to play him because he tested positive for COVID. But instead, you're going with, it's right for them to play him because he'll be well-rested. Come on, at this point, how many players do you think actually have tested positive and played? It's more than zero. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In November, after Maryland was forced to cancel a game against Ohio State because of a COVID outbreak, Rob Aller of the Columbus Dispatch fretted that the Buckeyes wouldn't play enough games to qualify for the college football playoff. At the time, Ohio State was only 3-0 and and needed at least three more games to qualify for the Big Ten championship game. Aller wrote, We've known all along the virus is going to be OSU's toughest regular season opponent. The column was headlined, Enjoy Ohio State football while it lasts. Fast forward almost two months, and Ohio State is one of the final two college football programs with a game left to play. Saturday, the Buckeyes pushed their record to 7-0 after beating Clemson 49-28 in a college football playoff semifinal at the Louisiana Superdome. That victory set up Ohio State for a championship game matchup against Alabama next Monday. The Crimson Tide improved to 12-0 after a rout of overmatched Notre Dame in the other semifinal a Rose Bowl that was played at Cowboy Stadium in Arlington, Texas. In case you missed that, that's a Rose Bowl in Texas, which really accentuates the absurdity of this whole enterprise. So there's a lot to cover about the previous weekend of games. Ohio State's Justin Fields threw six touchdown passes, four of them following an injury that he didn't get a diagnosis on until after the game. Alabama's Devontae Smith seems poised to become the first wide receiver to win the Heisman Trophy in almost 30 years. My boy, my someday, you know, godson, I hope. I don't know how I'm going to make it happen. But Alabama running back Najee Harris completely hurdled the guy and kept going. Ohio State running back Trey Sermon broke the fourth wall. Alabama's offensive coordinator is now going to be the new head coach of Texas and so on and so forth. But given how weird and unprecedented this college football season was, Stefan, doesn't it almost seem poetic that Ohio State made it to the very end? Yeah, poetic is one word, Joel. Uh, In the future, when you look up the meaning of the phrase, the ends justify the means. There's going to be a picture of Ryan Day holding whatever trophy they gave him after uh, Ohio State beat Clemson. This is the perfect semi-ending, as Bruce Schoenfeld detailed in a New York Times Magazine cover story on Sunday. Ohio State strong-armed the rest of the Big Ten into playing the season because, as their athletic director told his colleagues on a conference call in the summer, It's so hard to put this type of team together, and we have a unique opportunity. Pandemic, schmandemic. We got a football team that can go all the way, fellas. But back to Ohio State's schedule. Um, It wound up playing just five conference games, one short of the minimum of six that the Big Ten had set to play in the title game. Ohio State again got the rest of the Big Ten to change plans, which at that point made sense because Indiana or Northwestern Sure as hell weren't getting into the playoff, and there was a pot of gold waiting for everybody in the conference. The Buckeyes beat Northwestern, made the Final Four. That meant $6 million for the conference to share. Great day, Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren texted 
Schoenfeld after Ohio State made it. Love it when officials text reporters. By that metric, and it's really the only metric, it was, in fact, a great day. Everyone should get a helmet sticker with the actual coronavirus on it at Ohio State, I think. (laughs) I like that idea. There's been a lot of talk about the college football playoff, quote-unquote, devaluing the Bulls since the advent of the CFP. But this was the first year, I think, really, where it was... CFP or nothing for the entire sport. When you look at these other games, it was, you know, and we're just we're just coming off talking about the Nate Sudfeldation Sudfeldization of the week 17 of the NFL. Like it was more surprising when a notable college football player was playing in a bowl game, a non-CFP bowl game, than when they were, you know, opting out. And good for them. Like they shouldn't have been playing in these games. And they, sh- you know, maybe shouldn't have been playing, you know, during the entire season. But then you have this alternative universe of the CFP where it's like, not only are we going to play, we're going to move the game, the Rose Bowl, to another state to allow us to play. And not only are we going to play when our quarterback gets injured, we're not even going to like give him a full medical diagnosis. Um, You know, Justin Fields said after the game, they didn't really tell me anything. I took a shot or two and just ran back out there. And the thing that I found most telling about that is at the halftime interview, Ryan Day, the Ohio State coach, after seeing his quarterback get speared on a hit that led the Clemson player to get ejected, he said he just needs to play 30 more minutes. There wasn't any question of he needs to play 30 more minutes if he's healthy. He needs to, you know, we need to see what's best for him and like diagnose him at halftime. Like they hadn't gone in at halftime and looked at him or talked to him. It was just, he just needs to play 30 more minutes. And then after the game, Joel, and rightly so, there's this conversation both on the field and in the broadcast booth about how tough Justin Fields was and what an amazing performance it was. And and it was all of those things. But, you know, even as we've gotten more kind of smart and sensitive about the trauma of the game, there is still this, you know, tendency to celebrate guys getting hurt and still playing potentially to their detriment. And especially when it's a college player and especially when that college player is going to be one of the first players taken in the draft. Yeah, right. And, you know, I I called it poetic in the intro, but I I guess maybe the better word is grotesque. You know what happened there? Poems can be grotesque. Yeah, that's true. They can't be very gruesome. (laughs) That's true. That's true. But referring back to that New York Times story, it, it really sort of laid out the way in which the player's health and their concerns really take a backseat to everything else. And in that way, it makes sense that the star of the game was a guy who, you know, when everything's on the line, they don't need to know what happened to him. They don't care what happened to him. Can he play? And that's essentially the way the Big Ten and Ohio State and all these other schools basically approach the pandemic. They're like, how can we play? At the end of the day, the players' health concerns and all that other stuff, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. Can we get them out there on the field? Right. And you know, it really, to me, it was, you know, we knew a lot of this, right? But it was still impressive to see the cynicism and opportunism on such open display in that New York Times story. And for me, yeah. the most summing up anecdote was after Ohio State had played four games and had just three left on its schedule, Ryan Day and some of the players tested positive for the coronavirus. It was not enough positives to trigger an automatic cancellation of their next game, but Schoenfeld wrote the athletic director, Gene Smith, quote, knew that a weekend of airports and locker rooms was likely to spread the virus among players and staff members, end quote. So he made a tactical decision not to risk losing more than one game and then likely missing out on the Big Ten title game and the possibility of making it to the playoffs, which, okay, 
but a weekend of locker rooms in airports was every weekend. Right. Right. Well, you know what's interesting about that story, and not 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 to detract too much from from talking about the CFP, but I mean, they basically connected the dots and f- figured out. And I mean, we've talked about this already that holding those games may have indirectly driven the spread throughout yeah. the upper Midwest. That like it gave people a reason to congregate, have people over to their homes to watch games, watch it at bars, tailgate, you know, illegal tailgates and everything else. Like it was irresponsible not only to the players that were involved in the enterprise here, but also to the surrounding communities. Yeah. And, and they just pushed they, forward. He interviewed the the health commissioner for the city mm-hmm. of Columbus. Yep. And she was as 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 open as you could be, we're trying to change the behavior of all these people. What's their motivation? Meaning fans. You know, the players were protected. Nobody else was. Speaking of motivation, Dabo Sweeney ranked Ohio State number eleven. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Saying he meant saying to rank that, them number one twice. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> saying that oh, it wasn't. I wasn't saying anything about. You know how good they are, but it's just that they didn't play enough games to be ranked in the top 10. And in my, you know, moral, you know, universe, you can't be in the top 10 if you haven't played enough uh, enough games. <laughs> it, I feel like even for the kind of low opinion that I had of Dabo coming into <laughs> the year, and maybe it's not even fair to single him out. I mean, he's a college football coach. I have a low opinion of all college f- football coaches, but he performed the worst Hmm. of anyone in terms of rhetoric around the pandemic, in terms of just sticking to the like normal attitude of all I care about is winning. He, I mean, I guess credit to him for, for consistency, but like accusing Florida State of, of ducking them because they didn't want to play a Clemson team with a player that had tested positive. And we know, I think, based on the story that you guys have been talking about and every other thing, that it's not like Ohio State was not playing games because they were like taking players like health and safety mm-hmm. seriously. But like even bracketing that, for him to say that the teams that don't play enough games are like behaving poorly or or deserve to be punished for that is just like execrable. It's re- I, like you can't. I don't want to risk like going over the top, but like the rhetoric that he used mm-hmm. and the way that he talked about the season was like dangerous mm-hmm. and stupid. Mm-hmm. And you know, Chuck Culpepper wrote a piece for the Washington Post about Nick Saban, which I think went too far in trying to portray Nick Saban as like a good person or like. You know, but but Saban compared to Dabo Sweeney, like was acting like you know Dr. Fauci. Fauci. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in fairness, like Alabama was never in a position like one of these other schools were. Like they were never at risk of losing a game, never at risk of missing the playoff. And so Saban could act like magnanimous and say like, "Oh, like we I've learned important lessons." And I've blah, 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 That's blah, funny blah. to say that because the story is that the SEC is so tough every fucking week that the, the game is, you know, up for grabs. But okay, now now by the way, the Alabama wasn't at risk well, of it's losing. Well, it's a testament to how dominant right. a team a dominant yeah. a team they had and how like they run a very tight ship that over there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I guess it helps when you have all the those five stars. But like Alabama was dominant. Saban could kind of sit back and say the right things and do the right things. And his team was going to end up in the the final of the college football you could playoff. Say the same thing about Clemson and Dabo Sweeney. They've been dominant. They're a former national champion. They've got five star recruits, but behavior reveals who a man is. And what you're saying, Josh, though, is that you would rank Dabo Sweeney number one. 
I don't exactly follow, but like number Joel, one as the <laughs> asshole coach of the year. And, oh yes, you know, Dan Mullen probably too. Thank you for clarifying. It was like between him and Mike Leach, basically. Basically, yeah. him and Mike Leach, you know, were, were scrapping it out for the top spot know. for Dan most Mullen irresponsible. Was kind of up there, you know. Yeah. Fair point. But like Brian Kelly, the, said, Brian, Brian Kelly Brian Kelly saying that oh Notre Dame, we're not going to play if you don't allow fans into the Rose Bowl. But oh, it's it's because you know the players' families deserve to see them. I mean, that guy is. That guy stinks too. I mean, there, there. Saban did stand out among these coaches in the playoff for like acting the most normal, which I, mm-hmm. I think is more of a commentary on the other coaches than it is on <laughs> Saban. But like, can we just talk for a second about Notre Dame and the thing that stood out to me in that game was that Alabama was just doing the most simple stuff. They were like, okay, let's throw a screen to Devontae Smith. He will run for a touchdown. Let's hand off to Najee Harris. He will hurdle this guy. And it's hard to buy into narratives that go over like multiple decades. But like Notre Dame just does not look competitive ever in these games when they make it into the, these like big bowl games or the playoff. And then Brian Kelly was getting really mad at everyone at the press conference after when they when they were like pointing out that Notre Dame never does well in these games. But like, Joel, is it fair to question whether Notre Dame belongs here, or is it just like a bunch of results that aren't connected to each other? I mean, it's it's fair in that, you know, Notre Dame now has a fairly long record of not being competitive in these games over the course. So like whenever you're trying to figure out well, who should fill in that final spot um, of a playoff of a playoff bracket, that like there's a lot more skepticism and deservedly so about whether or not Notre Dame can put up a credible challenge against a number one seed type team. But, I mean, they did enough to win. They want, you know, they played in the ACC championship game. They had an undefeated season. So, I mean, they they have to be there. I mean, the thing is, though, is that, and maybe it's because the season has been so weird and we haven't really had a chance to have a lot of perspective on it. But, like, is it possible that this is one of the best college football teams we've ever seen in terms of Alabama? And we just don't know it because the season has been so weird. I mean, one thing that I, I saw that just sort of blew my mind, that Alabama's 2017 recruiting class included four first-round NFL picks. That includes Tua in 2020. And that recruiting class includes Devontae Smith, Najee Harris, Mac Jones, Alex Leatherwood, and Dylan Moses. Those are other, that's a collection of dudes or probably another three first-round picks within that group. So as, as much as like you want to like say, well, yeah, Notre Dame doesn't match up, None of those other teams that were in the running for the four seed would have done much better. They would, it's true. A&M got stomped out, and I mean, it presumably, you know, it probably would have happened to Cincinnati too. Unfortunately, so, I think Cincinnati would have been more interesting because they have a good defense, and it would have been nice to see Alabama's offense go against a, a defense that's you know one of the best in the the country. But like, yeah, Alabama is really good. I think their offense might be one of the best ever. I mean, at least. They're not clearly better than LSU was last year, but they're like one of the best ever. But their defense, I think, is not. If you're talking about all-time greatest teams, you have to have an all-time great defense. And they gave up a lot of points to Ole Miss. They gave up a lot of points to Florida in that CC title game, a Florida team that's not very good. But Florida has one of the best offenses in the history of the game, too, though. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like, I mean, at least production-wise, it's understandable that they would be slugging it out with an offense. Sure, but, like, Alabama's great. They're not one of the greatest teams ever. That's all you just, I'm, you that's just all don't, I'm saying. You just don't want anybody to challenge your dear I'm not, LSU I don't think Tiger, LSU so is, like, like, the LSU defense wasn't that great either in terms of, like, all-time historical levels. But I think that it's, I think that it is possible that Alabama loses to Ohio State in a shootout. Like, that they have not shown, like, 
are we certain sitting here today that Ohio State's not going to put up a massive amount of points and require the Alabama offense to not make mistakes? Like, I'm not certain about that. I'll be watching the game with at kickoff and not know who's going to win, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously possible that Ohio State could give Alabama some trouble, but like, it's that has not typically been the standard by which we've judged the greatest teams in history. Like, when OU in 2003 was considered one of those teams, they played a bad game and gave up some points. When uh, USC was a great team in 2004, in 2003 when they lost to LSU. Yeah, but I mean, look, everybody up until that year, up until the end of the season, people thought that was one of the best teams they ever saw. The, the next year, two years later, when USC was undefeated in 2005, they didn't have a great defense, but everybody understood this is something special. There are not a lot of teams like this. Well, we will, we will have another data point at this you time just, next you just, week. I, where you, we just can, don't, you just don't want to give Bama their props, and I understand You know, there's a lot of I don't want to give them their here. props until the season is over. I mean, you can't be the greatest team ever and lose in the championship it's game. It's fair to say they look like one of the best teams in college football history. And they might, they may not, they might not complete that. They may lose, but I'm just wondering if we're underselling them because of how weird this season is. In that, in that way, unfairly maligning Notre Dame for not being able to be competitive when it's just like, yo, Najee Harris, all-time career-leading rusher at Alabama, Mac Jones, one of the best seasons you've ever seen, Devontae Smith, probably one of the best college wide receivers we've ever seen. It's just something to think about. That's all I'm saying. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about it. Can I ask you a quick running back question? Yeah, of course. Um, before before we go, I can't remember which game it was. It might have even been an NFL game. But what I was thinking was, on like a third down, how do you know where the sticks are as a running back? Like, it seems like when you're like on the field with all those dudes around you and trying to tackle you, I'm like, I think maybe one of the under most underratedly impressive <laughs> things is like knowing where the, the line is and like being able to stretch the ball out for it. I would have no idea where the first down marker is. Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of can you spot it out when you're in your stance behind the quarterback, and you're like, okay, that's the yard line I need to get to, and you try to keep, you know, you just try to have a sense for it. I mean, the thing is, so much of being a running back is instinctual anyway, right? Like knowing which hole is going to open up, when to cut it up, cut it outside, all that sort of stuff. So you just have a feel for when it. When you're getting tackled, are you able to like kind of look to the side and be like, I need to stretch the ball out a little bit? Well, you just know what yard line you need to get to. You know, and you might you might have a pretty good sense of that. It's all moving very fast. I mean, us running backs, we're special athletes, and so you've got to just keep that in mind that it's really hard to explain to mere mortals. Uh, and I feel like I don't understand it still. So, so you've uh, you've validated that. Maybe we need to invite Najee Harris on, so you can me and him can talk about you know what it's like to be a special running back and know where the I'll, sticks I'll are. I'll put myself on mute and just okay. just go to class. <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about Becky Hammond getting a chance to coach a regular season game for the San Antonio Spurs and what that means in the grand scheme of things for Hammond and for women coaches more broadly. We'll be joined for that discussion by ESPN's Michelle Vopel, who's covered Hammond for a very long time. To hear our thoughts and Michelle's thoughts, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
I tried to count up how many college basketball games have been postponed or canceled because of the coronavirus so far this season, but I gave up. It's dozens, scores, over a hundred, and that's not counting all of the games that were to be played by the men and women at the eight schools in the Ivy League, by the Bethune-Cookman men and women, by the Maryland Eastern Shore men and women, by the SMU women, by the Chicago State men, by the Florida A&M women, all of whom either didn't start or decided to end their seasons. Or by the Duke women, who won three of their first four games before announcing last week that they would not play the remaining 20 games on the team's regular season schedule. Michelle Vopel covers women's college basketball for ESPN. She is with us now. Thanks for coming on the show, Michelle. Thank you for having me. This feels like it should be a bigger story to me, and not just because one of the top programs in the sport with a big-name first-year head coach, Carol Lawson, is refusing to play while the rest of its power conference is playing, but because the decision appears to have been made exclusively by the players because they weren't satisfied with the safety precautions implemented by the Atlantic Coast Conference in which Duke plays. Um, Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people are still lingering on this story, if you will. Why hasn't anybody uh, with the Duke Athletic Department spoken out about this? Not Coach Carol Lawson, not the athletic director. It's been a very strange situation, I think, because I think it's fine if the players made this decision. You know, that's, I understand that they didn't feel like this was safe, but why were they not made available to the media to talk about it? And why hasn't Duke talked about it? That part to me doesn't make a lot of sense. Carol Lawson said earlier in the year that she didn't believe they should be playing, right? And Mike Krzyzewski, the Duke men's coach, said that he wasn't sure why the men were playing. So it's not like the leading figures in this athletic department have said anything that would necessarily contradict this decision. And the thing that seems so interesting to me is that the Duke women's team is one of the only entities in the sport where the actions have matched the rhetoric. And what an enormous statement it would be if the Duke men decided not to play, whether it was Coach K's decision or the players' decision, right? I mean, the, the Duke women, it's a huge thing, but you know, Duke men's basketball is the biggest brand name in the entire sport. And so the distinction there, and again, like you said, Michelle, with nobody commenting on this, it's kind of unclear why one decision was made and the other hasn't been. Yeah, and I think that comes down to money. I mean, let's be realistic. I think there's probably, let's go back to what Coach Krzyzewski said, right? He said, I think we should be looking into this. Are we doing the right thing? And this did come after a loss to Illinois. And and some people pointed that out. And then they immediately apologized, like, oh, we shouldn't bring that up. Well, you know, Kara Lawson's remark came right after they had gotten thumped by Louisville. It's natural to sort of wonder if, with both these coaches, if the fact that they their teams are struggling in any way, you know, affected what they said. Now, maybe maybe it didn't. Maybe it didn't at all. But again, where's the follow-up from Kara? Her team has decided to not play. So you would think she would be out there saying, okay, hey, this is why we came to this decision. We don't think it's safe. If you don't think it's safe, then maybe that's what you should be talking about. And and then you go to again with the athletic department. If it's not safe for Duke's women, why is it safe for Duke's men? I mean, that is a contradiction there. So again, I, I think we keep coming back to this is, like you said, it's a major brand name in, in global sports, not just American sports. And the Duke women are an outlier. So why are they an outlier? You know, so what's 
really interesting is that uh, it, it sounds like, and from your story, Michelle, you mentioned that it, it seemed like the inflection point was after that Louisville loss, yes. right? Um, and Louisville's coach said that the program had fo- stringently followed all ACC protocols and, quote, you know, not one single player of ours would have even been on that trip to Duke, let alone the floor, if they had any symptoms. And that actually tripped something off in my head is that, do we know for sure that these college programs know what they're doing at all? Because, like, symptomatic transmission is not the only kind of transmission there is. So that actually made me wonder, you know, do they actually know what they're doing in terms of implementing these protocols? Has there been any like conversation about the lack of standards among these programs? Well, they say they have followed exactly what the ACC protocol is. And the ACC has that protocol for all of its sports. So that goes, just what you're saying then goes back to if, if the Duke women are saying that's not safe and they don't believe that being tested three times a week is enough and they want everyday testing, and the ACC said we're not going to do that, then that probably needs to be something the school either su- really supports them on by speaking out about it, or they're doing what they're doing, which is saying, oh, yeah, we support them, and then we're going you know, silent. We're not explaining you know, what the, the players asked for, which, by the way, the only reason we know that is because one of the players, Jada Williams, talked about it on Twitter. And her mom has talked about it on Twitter. Her mom also has a son, uh, Trey Williams, who plays for Minnesota. So she has two children playing in Division I sports. So do they know what they're doing? Well, if we question if Louisville knows what they're doing, then I think we have to question if the ACC knows what they're doing, right? And that may be <laughs> right. part of the issue is, does Duke want to get into, a, a, I don't know if you'd say a battle, but a, a skirmish with the ACC when they all really don't want to shut their men's program down? I, I, I'm sure the school doesn't want to do that. Well, clearly the the that Louisville game raised red flags. I mean, this game was played on December 9th, and on December 11th, Louisville went on a pause as the NCAA, the new NCAA parlance for for suspending uh, practice and meetings on December 11th. So two days later, because of positive tests on December 11th. So I think the Duke women players were rightfully dubious about whether they were exposed potentially to some health risk by playing that game. And I think you're exactly right, Michelle. It's like Duke is put in a very difficult position now, the athletic department. They can either fight the ACC and point out the flaws and contradictions in the program or just let those float in the ether and have the season go on until something happens. Yeah. And I think then you look at a a situation like, you know, Kara Lawson's alma mater, Tennessee, they played Lipscomb. The next day they shut down their program because they had a positive test. So does Tennessee know what they're doing? You know, Mm -hmm. we can start doing this on so many different programs. It's certainly not just Louisville's women who've had played games and then shut down the program a day or two later, which goes back to exactly what Joel was saying. Like, do we know for sure that everyone knows what they're doing? Uh, but but you could almost say that <laughs> that's the biggest question we've had, not just in sports, but in society in general. So at some point, you have to count on the people you pay to make the decisions, right? I, I think that's what it comes down to. If the ACC says, hey, this is the protocol we've come up with. We're using these gold, quote unquote, gold standard tests that the, the, the CDC says are the best tests. We're doing it three times a week. And these programs say they're following it. Either you sort of accept that and know that there's going to be some glitches and some things are going to happen that you don't expect to happen. 
or you shut the whole thing down. And I think that's what we've been, that's been the biggest umbrella debate of, of collegiate sports. Do you accept the glitches? Do you accept that there's going to be programs that have to shut down and people get exposed to this virus or do you shut down college sports? And we've seen what the answer is. And I do want to point out another thing, which you guys I'm sure have talked about a lot. When they tried to shut down college football in the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, it was the parents and the players who protested against that. So the people you would think would be the most concerned about, you know, that this virus would impact players were the ones that were fighting to have the sport played. So Kurt Streeter did a column for the New York Times where he talked to Randy Edsel, the UConn um, football coach. And UConn was one of the three Division One programs that didn't play college football this fall. And Edsel said, you know, I talked to two dozen leaders on our team and they decided they didn't they didn't want to play. And so, you know, it's, there's differences across programs, differences across conferences. The one thing that's been consistent is that the teams that have, before this Duke women thing, the thing that seemed consistent to me is that the programs that decided they didn't want to play actually had a financial incentive not to play, or were, or they, they had reason to believe that they weren't going to be successful. So like SMU women, they haven't won a game. Chicago State men, they haven't won a game. Like the athletic director of Bethune-Cookman talks about how they would have lost a huge amount of money if they played this year. UConn um, football, they would have lost a huge amount of money and they wouldn't have been good. And the thing that's so interesting about the Duke women they're they don't you know they're not the like massive reg- revenue generator that the men do but it seems like an outlier michelle in that it's a successful program it's a program they're like getting recruiting wins carol lawson is like the most exciting young coach in the sport and it seems like the only case where it doesn't seem like it would have been in their financial interest to stop playing does that seem fair yeah in a lot of ways i think it does seem fair and i think it's why it surprised people um I don't think a lot was expected of Duke women this season for people who follow the sport closely because they'd lost their best two players from last year. It's Kara's first year. The program hadn't recruited as well as it usually does the last few years. Um, and kind of in, in the way I feel like it had gone into a little bit of a, just a malaise and Kara coming in was this huge, exciting thing. Like you said, I mean, she's a big personality in the sport. But she's never been a head coach before. In fact, she's coached very little. You know, she'd spent a year with the Boston Celtics as an assistant, coached a three-on-three in the Olympics. So she's never run a program before. And that's a lot to take on no matter how good you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much experience you have in the sport of basketball. So she really got thrown a lot to deal with in her first head coaching job. I mean, easily more than anybody's ever had in their first head coaching job, right? I mean, dealing with a pandemic and her team deciding that it didn't want to play. That's why I think people want to hear from her, hear how she's feeling about this, what the conversations she had with her team were like. And then it leads to that other question of, will this be a way that teams just stop having seasons if they're not playing well? And I don't want that to sound cynical, but when you looked at what SMU said, they said, you know, we felt like this entire experience they're 0-6, they're still taking tests, they're probably, you know, kept away from their friends and family. Was the whole experience worth it when you're not winning basketball games? I think that's where we may see more of this as the season goes on with programs that say it's not worth it to us. Um, and we may see that more in women's on the women's side than the men's side because of money. Should we discount some of the cynicism, Michelle, and just say that this is an incredibly important moment where college athletes who have no power in a practical way 
are exerting their, their the one power that they do have, which is to say, we won't play. But I think this isn't the start of that, obviously. This has been going on, and you guys know this, this has been almost like a drumbeat we've seen for several years now. And, you know, I, I support the athletes and what they're doing. It's their bodies that are on the line. It's their futures. We saw a lot of that this year with the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, look at a situation like Oklahoma State football, where Mike Gundy wears a t-shirt that's offensive to a lot of people. And his players are like, hey, wait a minute. You know, we don't like this. We want there to be dialogue about this. We want you to explain where you're coming from when you're doing this. That couldn't have happened, obviously, pre-internet. It couldn't possibly have happened because nobody would have been calling him out. But the players now have the power to do that. And just like you said, they have the power to say, hold on, we're not going to play. We saw that with Missouri football. Remember a few years ago with the situation, you know, with Missouri football team is saying, hey, we want some changes at this university. And if they don't happen, we're not going to play. We're going to see more and more of that. And I think it's, uh, it's a long time coming is what I would say. And I think the athletes should be listened to and supported. It doesn't mean they're always right. Sometimes they're young and they may make decisions that are rash, just like young people make decisions that are rash, but they're also, they should be listened to, right? I mean, because the people, other people who are making decisions are sometimes making decisions that are for the best of themselves and the university and money rather than the actual young people. Thinking a little bit about the calamitous consequences of playing in this time, um, a name that that sort of came to mind that we haven't even talked about on this show is Keontae Johnson. And for those who are unfamiliar with that, a F- University of Florida men's basketball player who collapsed December 12th during a game at Florida State. He was briefly placed in a medically induced coma and then was diagnosed with an acute case of myocarditis, which is, people, a lot of people know, been linked with some cases of coronavirus. But like... Keontae Johnson's not just a dude. He was the SEC's preseason player of the year. And I'm just wondering if it that disastrous scene, the way that that happened, has it all influenced what's happened since he collapsed on December 12th? Like in your reporting, Michelle, like has that name come up at all in terms of, you know, this is potentially really dangerous? Probably not as much as you might expect for how dramatic that situation was. And maybe part of that is that young people, to some extent, still feel bulletproof a little bit. Like, okay, this could happen to just like when you see somebody get a spinal cord injury in football. That could happen on every play. But people see it happen and they go right back to playing. They see the guy taken off. Part of sports and part of the reason we love athletes is their fearlessness and their, their the fact that they're willing to put their bodies on the line. This is another way, and in some ways, you could say they're putting their bodies on the line. They're they're rolling the dice a little bit with this, and I think that's why you're seeing. Obviously, with Duke, those players, we assume because again, they, we haven't been able to hear the whole story from them. They got together and said, "Hey, we feel like we were exposed. We feel like there's not enough testing. We don't trust the system, and we're not going to play." They talked that out amongst themselves, but you hear from a lot of other coaches and players, at least, uh, you know, on, in, in basketball and men's and women's basketball who say, we, we really want to play, you know, this is, this is what we do. We're willing to take the risk. We, we have faith in the system. And also you'll hear people say, I, I feel like I'm safer in this system than I would be outside of it. It's really crazy just also too, because like you'd think that the coaches would have some sense of self-preservation in this because like Rick Barnes, Tom Izzo, Jim Beheim, we're talking about, you know, people that are squarely within the category of people who, if they contract the virus, 
that it could go really poorly for them. There's no way of predicting like, but we know that like, you know, that, that older people tend to, you know, not do fare quite as well. So I'm just surprised then that the coaches themselves don't have <laughs> the concerns that the players seem to have. Well, right? those guys all tested positive already. I mean, Roy Williams yeah. is 70, Shashevsky is 73. Rick Patino suggested moving the tournament back to May to build a little more time in. He's not young either. So yeah, there is some self-interest here and maybe there is a behind the scenes tug of war with the athletic departments and the conferences about, about what to do. Basketball is different from football. There is way more travel, way more close contact. It's indoors. These are obvious things, but they need to be said. Yeah, I think those are all great points. We've had Tony Borzello on the women's side for Seton Hall um, had experienced COVID and was very sick with it. Uh, he recovered, but you know he talks about how serious this is. We've had other coaches who've either tested positive or had, because of contact tracing, couldn't coach in their games. We had two coaches out with the TCU and Baylor women. Both of them were out because of contact tracing. So if you talk to coaches behind the scenes, a lot of them will say, are we 100% sure we're doing the right thing? No, we're not 100% sure. But this is what we're doing. And this is what the people, again, who are paid to make the decisions, who have you know the medical expertise are telling us uh, is the safest way to do it. And so that's what we're going to do. Most of them, I think, deep down, you know, wanna, they, this is what they've been doing all their lives, right? So they, they want to keep doing it. It would be hard for them to take a whole season off of, of from playing, you know, from, from doing what they do. But I know one coach told me, you know, she just said to me, sometimes I wonder what we're doing. I really, I do like it, it, it occurs to me when we're all getting tested and, you know, we, we, we have one game that was, we're supposed to play. And then the next day it's a different game because this team tested positive. I wonder about it, but she's still playing. And so is her team. Michelle Vopel covers women's college basketball and college sports for ESPN. Michelle, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. And over the weekend, I was doing a little reading on Bethune-Cookman because it's one of the schools that canceled its spring sports. And I just happened across some obituaries for a man named Jack Cy McLaren, in particular an obit in the Orlando Sentinel by Mike Bianchi that referred to McLaren as the father, the son, and the galloping ghost of Bethune-Cookman athletics. A McLaren died at the age of 89. And this is a life story and a like list of accomplishments that is truly remarkable. And I'm just going to run through some of the stuff that Bianchi highlighted in his obituary. A three-sport athlete at Bethune-Cookman, football, basketball, and track, was the head football coach twice, was also the head basketball coach and the AD. Um, when he went to Bethune-Cookman, historically black college in Florida, he um, was the chauffeur for Mary McLeod Bethune, 
the founder of the school, drove around people, including uh, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. He played on the Bethune-Cookman basketball team with John Cheney, who would go on to become the coach at, at Temple, led um, his team to um, the NIT, the postseason tournament. He was drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers, went into the military for a couple of years before he played for the Steelers. Um, the Steelers kept McLaren and cut Johnny Unitas the first year that he was in training camp. He went on to make the all-pro team in the NFL, finished third in the league in receptions, went to the Pro Bowl where he roomed with Jim Brown. This guy uh, did a lot, is beloved at, and rightly so, at Bethune-Cookman. And so let us honor and remember Jack, Cy, McLaren, and all that stuff I read, again, was from the obit by Mike Bianchi, which I'll link to on our show page. Stefan, what is your Cy, McLaren? Our friend David Roth of Defector pioneered the practice of remembering some guys, recognizing that we have stored inside of us the names of athletes who are unremarkable by any historical standard, Tom Pachorek, Spider Lockhart, Dean Meminger, Jim Mason, but whose memory, whose name triggers a spasm of recognition and even joy. This is qualitatively different from remembering Zelmo Beatty, that's meant to correct an oversight because Zelmo Beatty was important in his sport. To remember a guy is to remember him not for his achievements, but for his existence. To be remembered in this way is an honor. It marks that you were good enough to be remembered at all. Someone who doesn't listen to this podcast, for instance, and doesn't know you from your work, Joel, has remembered you. The guy that was a running back on TCU for a second in the 90s when LT showed up, Joel <laughs> Anderson, I remember him. Oh I God. bring this up because the main character in the New York Times Magazine story about college football is Big Ten Conference Commissioner Kevin Warren. Before taking that job in 2019, Warren worked for more than 20 years as a lawyer and business executive in the NFL, most recently as the COO of the Minnesota Vikings. He is an extremely accomplished man and will be remembered for those achievements. But about three quarters of the way into the Times story, there's an anecdote about how when Warren was 10 in 1974, he was hit by a car while riding his bicycle. Doctors told him he probably wouldn't play sports again. Warren persuaded his parents to use some of the settlement money from the accident to build a backyard pool, devised his own water therapy program, and, quote, at 17, he was playing basketball at the University of Pennsylvania, end quote. As Bruce Schoenfeld wrote in the piece, the accident taught Warren that with perseverance, almost anything was possible, and it imbued him with an almost preternatural calm. But by that point, I had stopped reading because, wait, Kevin Warren, the Big Ten commissioner, was on the Quakers when I was there? Like David Roth opening a pack of 1994 tops and finding Don Slott or Gary Reedus, I now remembered the Kevin Warren as he relates to me. He was a freshman when I was a freshman. Crazy season. Penn won its first three, lost the next nine, won the next 14, and then lost a winnable game in the first round of the NCAAs. 66 to 56 to St. John's at the Nassau Coliseum. I remembered all of that. I was at the NCAA game, but I had to look him up to remember Warren as an end of the bench guy to be remembered. 22 games, four minutes and 1.2 points per game. It was Warren's only full season at Penn. After it ended, the Quakers coach, Bob Weinauer, who had taken the team to the final four just three years earlier, left Philly for Arizona State. 
Warren told the Daily Pennsylvanian, the student newspaper, it's something he had to do. He had to take the opportunity to move up in the ranks, spoken like a true future college sports administrator. Two games into his sophomore year at Penn, when he was still riding the bench, Warren followed Weinauer to Tempe, his hometown, where his father was a professor. He made the Sun Devils as a non-scholarship player the next season, scored five points in 12 minutes in three games, and transferred again to an NAIA school, Grand Canyon College, where his brother-in-law, the former Notre Dame star and NBA player John Shoemate, was the head coach. Warren wanted to play basketball. He lit it up for two years, 20 points a game, and then got on with his life. Warren would get an MBA from Arizona State and a law degree from Notre Dame. In addition to the Vikings, he worked for the Rams and the Lions. He's now the first African-American commissioner of a Power Five conference. But of course, that's not how or why I remember or care about Kevin Warren. Same with Fran McCaffrey, who's the head basketball coach at Iowa, but more important was a senior on those pre-shot clock Quakers who beat Princeton 43-40 to and 46-43 to that season. And Carl Racine, he's the attorney general of the District of Columbia now, but he ran some point as a freshman in 81-82 and was a starter for the next three years. I also remember Paul Little, who'd be drafted by the Blazers, and David Lardner, and Avery Rawlings, and George Noon, and Willie Oliphant, and George May, and Anthony Arnoli, and also Michael Brown, who just last month died of complications from COVID. So many guys to remember. Here's to the 1981-82 Penn Quakers. It's uh, fair to say, then that Kevin Warren probably laid the foundation for the Grand Canyon University basketball program that we know today, right? I mean, he was one of those guys. Another achievement for him. Mm -hmm. Dan Marley coaches there, right? Dan Marley, yeah, he's the coach there. That's right. That's right. I I got Myron Medcalf, who was on with us a couple months ago, maybe, at this point. He wrote a long profile about the Grand Canyon University uh, program. Maybe we should throw that up on the the show page as well. Sure. I don't want to end here without noting Mm. that my reference to Joel here, because I did a little Googling just to make sure. Joel, LT, the years. I could have just asked you, but I wanted to spring it on you. And I did stumble across a piece you wrote for the uh, student newspaper. Joel, you profiled LT. That's right. You went from his backup to his chronicler. I got a lot of good information as a result of uh, knowing him. That's right. Talked to his mom, talked to his brother. I wrote... I don't this know is Ladanian Tomlinson. Yes. This is Ladanian yes. Tomlinson. Yes. What's interesting is that people don't know what column inches are anymore in writing. That's not even a useful point, but it was about 80 column inches that I wrote this profile. It was, it was voluminous. I actually copy and pasted it, Joel. It was mm-hmm. 3,000 words. 3,000? That's it? For, uh, for an undergraduate. Yeah. That's not let just read, Let me just read the lead. Oh, it God. Late, it is a late summer afternoon it in was Fort so bad. Worth, and Ladanian <laughs> Tomlinson is alone. He is a solitary figure on a hill, several blocks away from TCU's practice field. Practice ends, but Tomlinson decides to battle fatigue, the heat, and the uphill climb just a little longer. Being the best has its price, and Tomlinson is anteing up. Just bad college writing all the way around. That is awesome college writing. No, no. But yeah, no, man. Me and I spent down with LT's mom, and this was after the summer when the really the big story is that he'd gotten arrested with TCU's best NBA player, a uh, best NBA prospect, Lee Nalon, in an off-campus, <laughs> an off-campus motel uh, where they were smoking weed, which seems so much scandalous 
1999 uh, than it would today. So yeah, this was, I really helped play a role in the redemption of LaDainian Tomlinson, believe it or not. That is our show for today. On that note, our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us out. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.